Welcome to the seventh episode of In Conversation With. In this episode, Jess chats with Nina Callahan, who recently co-facilitated the module called Globalization, Governance and Development. Nina is a master's student at Stellenbosch University, seeking better questions and practice for development, politics, family making and being together on this mysterious planet. Her research into governance focuses on state capture and geopolitics and how to better influence these narratives in the public domain. Nina has previously worked as the director of the NGO Children's Radio Foundation, as a broadcast journalist and theatre performer. Here, Nina and Jess chat about the themes covered in the module, including how toxic masculinity links to the topic. Nina says she is fascinated in finding deeper understanding on how we are complicit in the systems that oppress us. She also speaks about what is most needed in a post-COVID world, which is investment in deglobalization and regionalism that helps guard us against the vulnerabilities of a hyper-connected world. What we need most now, she says, is not a deluge of food aid, but rather long-term investments in soil health, robust local food systems, and supporting the formalization of informal trade. We hope you enjoy this episode. Here are Nina and Jess. So today we have Nina join us, chatting about the recent module that she ran online with Mark on globalization. Uh, Nina, thank you so much for the time with us today. Hi, Jess, and hi, everyone who's listening. Good to be with you. Stunning. So I have to be very honest, Nina, this is probably one of the topics that I feel perhaps the least prepared to ask questions on. So we're really going to structure this as a bit of a conversation, but I'm I'm very curious. Um, globalization, if you want to think about it, is perhaps one of the broadest frames one could draw on, at least on this planet. So how would you summarize the key themes that you recently explored with Mark and the class in this module for someone like myself who may not be that familiar with the field? Right. So you're right, Jess. Um, it was a very broad field to try and wrap our heads around. Um, and what we really tried to understand were the global debates and our crisis-ridden global order. And how we approached this uh, was to look at the intersections between the global economic crisis and a persistent coloniality at the heart of that, um, together with the climate crisis. And that was really the, the first big theme um, of our week to be able to grasp the depth and the complexity of a range of the global challenges. So a lot of it was trying to understand um, the global economic crisis of 2007, 2008, um, what precipitated that collapse and what sits underneath all of this. And when we were thinking about this persistent coloniality, it was an invitation to us to be thinking about coloniality as a single way of being, of a single way of understanding systems ourselves. Um, and I think a very useful move to interrogate these global questions that are, many of them built on an architecture of um, a colonial hangover, if you'd like. Um, and so not just to see uh, glo 
like global powers as um, as single or, or strong actors um, on this on this global stage, but something that permeates all of our lives. Um, we then moved on to understand alternatives and to look at heterodox theory and non-equilibrium economics um, to provide a more maybe appropriate framework for our global economic challenges. Um, heterodox and non-equilibrium economics embraces complexity more than traditional economics does. Traditional economics believes that the market will always tend to equilibrium, that things will always trickle down. And as we know, that doesn't actually happen, that we need intervention and we need direction. Um, and leaving things up to the market means in this global age, exacerbating inequalities and all of the other crises that um, afflict our world. So we took a look into um, non-equilibrium economics and how it understands value, how it understands the importance of governance. And that was our third major theme, um, that, to, that to influence direction, to set direction, we need a mode of governance that is um, a way of understanding how to order and manage social relations. And this is an incredible uh, theorist called Bob Jessup um, that we are really attached to. And his theory of governance that he calls collaboratory governance. And it's about moving between modes of governance for very particular ends. So those modes of governance could be a command and control, which I think we felt very strongly during these COVID times. Um, there's also bureaucratic mode of governance, uh, which is all about um, following steps, following processes, ticking off boxes. Um, it's a very ordered kind of engagement with people and process. And then there's radical solidarity, which is a lot more, perhaps, as we can understand how that happened during our communities during COVID, um, with the emergence of the CAN networks. Um, that would be an example of more radical solidarity. And then there's also dialogue, um, which is really trying to understand the systems that we are working in and to surface and reveal the systems to actors in a governance um, landscape. We moved on, Jess, to then touch on some more personal, personally resonant um, themes um, like toxic masculinity and gendered power and how that relates to climate denialism and authoritarian populism and really trying to reflect on our own positions when it came to these um, to these themes and how we elude and resist. Um, Mark took us through a mind-building day of his uh, transition thinking and long-wave theory 
as a way to compile future imaginaries. What could the world look like knowing which kinds of processes are driving change? And that was really interesting to figure out what are the possibilities, where should we put our energies and where should we invest? And the last day was reflecting on being fully human um, and, and looking at Ukama and Ubuntu as not just philosophies, but ways of being with each other and with other life forms on the planet. Um, and that brought us to an end looking at the commons and the practice of common um, So it was a really full and very challenging week, and that was a very long answer to your question. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, certainly an answer that's only opened up a hundred more questions to me. And before we get into some of them, I mean, wow, it, that, that really does sound like a lot of ground was covered, but really, um, I think at the same time, some very important uh, themes surfaced and perhaps some of them connecting to the work, you know, for the students who started with us this year and even last year that I had framed around what does it really mean to be human um, in these times and in any time. Um, but before we jump more into, into kind of questions and, and curiosities around the module, I'd love to hear what is your own research work at the moment for those who maybe haven't met you um, or who haven't engaged with you on your, your personal research inquiries. Um, what are you looking into and, and what's really exciting about your work? Just to give us a bit of a sense of who you are in all of this as well. Okay. Um, so I'll be very honest. So, you know, you all, you got to bear with me here because <laughs> I don't have a neat answer to that one, Tess. Um, I started working at the Center for Complex Systems in Transition last year. So I've been there a year and it's really been um, a very deep dive. And I think I'm doggy paddling. Um, my head's just above the surface. And what we've been, what I've been immersed in is uh, state capture, research around state capture, looking at developing a theory that helps us understand the human motivations that happen inside and that drive corruption. And for me, this is really important because we often other um, corrupt governance actors or corruption. We think it's something outside of ourselves. We think it's something that Jacob Zuma and the Guptas did. When in fact, um, what we've tried to explore is understanding um, the motivations and the ways in which corruption was facilitated, which ended up being this massive um, political and economic uh, project of state capture. So we've developed a theory called a racket theory, and the rackets include um, perpetuating an untruth and enrolling people in an untruth through uh, making them complicit, um, colluding, conning. Um, and so it makes the whole entire project of state capture a lot more relatable. Um, you can understand how things happened when 
um, you know, people who are in precarious positions with their jobs, um, wanting to advance in the world, um, do really strange and damaging things. Um, and that's not to excuse it, you know, it was more, it's more theory to understand it um, and to understand how we can prevent um, the kind of corruption that we've seen um, that has taken root in our governance systems um, and to understand that governance doesn't only live in the states, you know, it lives in our home, it lives in our workplaces, it lives in the way that we reward or punish or favor um, and that it's it's a it's a very insidious kind of life you know that lives with us so that's one of the one of the research areas that that i'm excited about because it tries to take um something like state capture and bring it home you know to each one of us Oh, and I, I must say it's quite refreshing because I think a lot of what happens when we polarize is this, like you said, the complete othering. Um, and we don't see either, you know, elements of ourselves within it, nor do we see pathways forward um, because there's no empathy. Um, perhaps to simplify what sounds like a, an incredibly interesting field that you're stepping into. Um, so Nina, I've got a, quite a few things I'd love to ask you. And, and the next one is actually... It's a bit of a big one, so um, it feels like an unfair set of questions to ask, but in a way, you know, it's not only part of the course description, but I think it, it marks the difference between um, two very important, uh, well, you know, two aspects that I think many of our students and our alumni, kind of friends of theirs, I grapple with, which is one, to make sense of what comes next, uh, but secondly, to think about what should come next. Um, and as you explored this through the, you know, multiplicities of what globalization offers us as a space to explore um, in your own work, uh, in the conversations that emerged in the course of the week together, what is your sense of both? What comes next? What should come mm. next? Yeah, those are very unfair questions. <laughs> <laughs> What's the meaning of life? Just while we're at it. <laughs> um. I think I think what has been um, COVID nineteen has been an incredible lens to understand um, global norms and to point us in directions of what comes next and what should come next. In terms of globalization, we've we've really um, made ourselves more vulnerable being more globally connected. Um, and I think we can see those kinds of impacts when we look at economics, economic systems, um, the way that we have become completely dependent on the kinds of value chains that we've put in place, um, how we've become dependent on imports uh, for food, um, for industry, and how COVID has showed us that when those value chains stop, how vulnerable livelihoods and economies actually are. And so I think what comes next um, 
is probably a reinvestment um, in those systems, you know, just uh, trying to get economies restarted, um, trying to get livelihoods restarted. But I think what should come next is um, a sense of deglobalization or a sense of appreciating regionalism more to guard against the kinds of vulnerabilities that COVID-19 has showed us, especially around food systems. Um, we know that Africa imports so much um, from a cluster of countries and how food scarcity during COVID times has really become very apparent. And so um, investing in local food systems uh, that are kind to the earth and to soils and to people, I think is what should come next. Um, probably what comes next is a deluge of aid, food aid um, and development packages that do not take into account the, the bouquet of sustainability concerns that we should be thinking about, um, like longer term food security, longer-term soil health, um, how to how to formalize uh, informal trade um, and livelihood making. Yeah, these are the things that I think should come next. Uh, that's, um, yeah, and I think that's often what a lot of us who imagine I'm trying to use less the word alternative, but rather appropriate yeah. and imagining appropriate futures. Um, yeah, there's a question I want to ask you in a little bit about kind of what roles we can play. But before I do, um, I heard from some of the students that there was a really fantastic conversation that you hosted with Marcelo Matze um, around themes of toxic masculinity. And I think if I, I um, draw on your kind of introductory framing around the key themes that you explored, um, perhaps speaking to some of these deeply, deeply seated colonial paradigms that continue to drive and inform much of our economic models, um, governance and, and kind of decision making more broadly. Um, were there something, you know, kind of without uh, us all having access to that conversation that seemed to, to really be a worthwhile one? Uh, maybe some key insights that you could share with us? Yes. Um... It was a really, it was a really big conversation with Matilo, um, and and I think what we what we agreed on was that the the most extreme and the most dangerous expression of toxic masculinity is gender based violence, um, especially the ways that we experience it in South Africa, but around the world, um, and. Matsilo invited us to think about toxic masculinity as a wounded masculinity and um, violence that is born from the sense of woundedness and that it is possible for adult masculine identity to claim itself without being hyper-masculine, without claiming a patriarchal manhood, um, an aggression, a strength, um, and 
the kind of sexuality that is expressed through that. So I think here it was also really important to, to understand the danger of the single story of masculinity um, and how men are schooled um, in, a, in a stereotype, and I think women are as well, in a, in a stereotype of gender. Um, we also explored a little bit of different ways to theorize gender. Um, and perhaps that is, a, that is a way that we can begin to construct new identities, uh, more flexible identities around what gender expression looks like. Um, but it's also, I think, an invitation for everyone, women included, to be involved in healing these deep wounds that we carry as men and women through our conditioning. And Matsilo, again, you know, just really emphasized um, this thing that we do, the othering that we do. Um, and it was an invitation to extend empathy, which I have such a problem with, you know, I, I get blocked at a certain point. I just get angry. I get frustrated. I get mad. I get scared around toxic masculinity and hypermasculinity. And I find it very hard to extend my empathy and do something different um, instead of just othering that hypermasculine. Um, and so I think that that uh, the conversation was a way to find um, to find ourselves not being complicit in perpetuating these hypermasculine um, agendas, even in the way that we resist. And that was very challenging for me. Um, um, I'm sure it was very challenging for the students as well. Um, but to identify ways of how are we complicit in our systems of oppression? And that's a very big question, and I'm still chewing on it, um, because I know that even in the ways I resist, I might be perpetuating the very thing I want to stop. Mm -hmm. And so that has left me with a whole lot more questions, but many more openings, you know, than than just anger or just, um, just, I don't know, what else you'd call it, you know, yeah. Mm. I mean, I, it's a very powerful thing that you're sharing because I think when we're blinded by our anger, which can often be very legitimate anger, um, it takes up yeah. the whole room. Um, yeah. And when, like you said, there's openings, when the room becomes bigger, and the spaces are enlarged to see and, and include other experiences and perspectives. It's humbling is not the right word. It's, it's terrifying because I think um, the other, you know, the anger and the other that took up so much of that space um, is now suddenly joined by many other um, feelings and senses and, you know, and it's, um, 
my sense is for certainly for me it's uncharted water um and i i think yeah it's the right it's the necessary but very certainly the hard questions that it sounds like um were asked and and that you're continuing to ask nina um I mean, I, I think we could have a conversation into into this in and of itself, and, and maybe that is something that we pick up as we continue with the series. But, I mean, given how broad the conversations were, the explorations, is there anything that you might recommend for, for people listening today who might want to explore some of these themes further, um, either a read or a listen, a oh. resource of any sorts? Um, and then also, uh, is there anything not related to this, perhaps even not academic in any way, um, that you're finding especially relevant and uh, insightful mm. at this time? Um, you know, I I met um, this man a few years ago. Um, his name's Bayo Akomolafe. And over the last year, I think he's just exploded Um in certain circles, uh, in academic discourse. He is a Nigerian writer, poet, philosopher, um, psychologist, father, and he calls himself a very proud changer of nappies. <laughs> and Bio writes, he's, he's, he's like mantra, is um, times are urgent we must slow down. And this really appeals to me. Um, you know, we're, we're in the midst, the midst of multiple crises. Uh, we are searching for answers. We are attempting systems thinking. We are trying to make a proper diagnosis so that our remedies are sound. And in and in the doing um bio cautions um we don't realize that there is an interdependent um feedback loop you know that while we act on the world the world also acts on us and how aware are we in our desire to enact change and so I really find him very provocative. He, he writes on so many um, big themes of our time, on climate change, on decoloniality, on race, um, and, and, and how, we, how we become um, transfixed and seduced by our identities that are very anthropocentric and that make very little space for the other than human, be that the spirit, be those allies that we can't see um, in animals, in the animal kingdom, in plant kingdoms. And it's, a, it's an invitation to soften our, our single stories, <laughs> to make them more personal. And so I really enjoy him and I would really recommend him if you just if you search him on a on a search engine, you'll find so many um, results on on bio. Um, so really worthwhile. And then my daughters have come across uh, somebody called Carolyn C. And she also speaks about um, the decolonial project, but 
through through a very personal lens as a recovering addict and she talks about radical self-care and what is radical self-care as a way of as an expression of resistance um and i found that really interesting because i'm so bad at self-care you know i'm i'm schooled during a time i'm 45 years old kind of grew up in the 80s where self-care during struggle was not appreciated um it didn't have value it didn't have place the ways that my family expressed themselves and participated in things didn't show self-care at all and i think i have a lot of hangovers and unlearning to do about the value of self-care in my life and in struggle and in our and what is required for our changing times um so i find carolyn c she's on instagram and i find her really provocative and helpful yeah to unlearn i um i love both of those i'm looking so forward to um to looking into them further and we'll include the links at the bottom of this podcast so that everyone can easily follow into some of bio's readings as well as to to look further at this work of radical self care and i think um yeah what kinds of islands of sanity are we creating for ourselves and and how do we move out of these very shallow waters i think that sometimes can hold us um it's like oh. drowning in shallow water um when we forget that there's this depth of an ocean um and that in a way it's it can be very liberating very freeing i've been thinking a lot lately on this um i think it's an irish folklore but it's it shows up in so many different folklores around the seely or the seal um kind of akin with the soul and that you can live oh. on land for a time um but that if you stay too long you will dry out and uh there's we all have this need to return to the source and um kind of the the folklore is that we have to go back to the depths of the ocean um to remind ourselves who we are and to re to rehydrate in the simplest of sense but i think there's a you know um to yeah. nourish the soul again um and both of those sound like wonderful reads in that direction um i think we've started we've kind of maybe stepped into um this kind of almost last question of mine which is you know for all of us listening for those of us that maybe don't understand all of the intense academic jargon um for for those of us that are or for even for many of us who do understand their intense academic jargon what are some of these practical real tangible um human ways more than human um ways of connecting uh and originally i think i'd frame this as a question around you know to support a just transition but i th- i think that's not the right question i don't know what the right question is but yeah for for everyday humans uh what are things that we can do to to maybe reconnect with our humanity and with our our more than humanness um i think i think just on um on actions we can take generally i think we need to be better at participating in civic life just on a very ordinary scale like attending the pta meeting at school <laughs> putting your hand up um for 
the governing body, um, you know, attending a community meeting, uh, it's really, I think it's really important to develop the capacity to participate because I think we're losing it. I think we're losing the ability to understand and have the skills to mobilize and connect purposefully. So I think, um, and that doesn't just come naturally. I think we have to develop the capacity to participate. Um, and when we are very myopic, living in our nuclear families, paying the bills, packing the lunches, feeding the dog, driving in the car, um, and all of those are very, all you know, it can be very all-consuming activities. We we lose the skills um, to participate in bigger structures and in bigger movements and in bigger possibilities than just looking after ourselves. So I think that's one thing that we need to think about is developing this capacity to participate. I think for the other than human, uh, I don't know, hey, that's that's like that feels like a life's work. <laughs> it feels like <laughs> it feels like finding ways to be less entranced with humanness only, with the anthropocentric of our lives only. Um, I know a lot of people are exploring plant medicine as a way to, um, to broaden experience and to, to understand something in a not only a cognitive way. So not with our brains, not with our minds but with our spirits and our bodies. Um, and I think that's a very interesting exploration. And I think there's a there's an entire movement of plant medicine seekers and who are yeah, who are who are trying to explore in different ways. So that's very interesting to me. Um, and also what is what is difficult for me, but I try is um, finding a practice, finding finding ritual and making ritual in my life that connects me to um, nature, that connects me to the mountain, to the sea, um, that makes my relationship with the thing that breathes me and sustains me more intentional. And so that's my that's my big. Um, kind of journey, you know, to to make space and time for ritual and intentional communion um, with the natural world and with the with the earth that supports us all. Mm. And I think there's a wisdom that sits in those um, beyond word spaces that we've always been a part of, um, and we need to commit and dedicate um oh. i like to dedicate the time uh, yeah. to connect with nina um i could keep chatting all day <laughs> um this has just been such a a really lovely and unexpected conversation i i must admit when um kind of approaching the theme of globalization i was like oh goodness what like 
this sounds very academic um but i think you know as with many of our our modules and our explorations it's it's about both the academic rigor the exploration um and the the deeply human and beyond human yeah. kind of uh questions and, yeah. and provocations so um i'd love to ask you we've we've developed a bit of a tradition here with the in conversation with series um asking each of our co-conversants to leave our listeners with a question um, and could I invite you to leave us to kind of close us out with, with a provocative question from your side? Um, you know, just reflecting on, on this conversation and how, how there are all these huge transitions um, underway at the moment. Um, what poly crises we are experiencing, um, how desperate we are for change um, and, and, and where we look to find an expression of that change or evidence of that change for me is really important. It's about, it's the thing that can give us hope and inspiration and a place to participate. So I think my question would be, can we stay enthusiastic about the small things. Mm. Can we stay enthusiastic about the small projects we are part of, um, the groups that we are part of, the friendships and family that we nurture, the gardens that we grow in our pots or our backyards, um, about the kindnesses we show? Can Can we can we maintain enthusiasm and energy for the ways that we are <laughs> and live? Um, yeah, for the small things. And um, yeah, and find celebration. I love that enthusiasm, kind of joy, mm. um, celebration. And Nina, that's um, a lovely way for us to to kind of close on what has been a, a wonderful uh kind of short but um really beautiful conversation so thank you so much for your time i know that i'm imagining from this many people will want to connect with you and your work more broadly um nina is part of the center for complex systems and transition as well as a facilitator and um part of the kind of the broader degree programs hosted here at the sustainability institute um so and nina if you're on any platforms or if you write anywhere we'll include some of those links below um otherwise i think the best uh time and place to connect with nina is if you can bump into her at the corridors of the institute we're hoping to be back open um if all goes to plan kind of in person next year um and yeah with great hopes from my side that many more of these Important explorations will continue to unfold. Thank you, Jess. Nina, thank that you so much lovely. for your Thank you.